Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. This is the 59th episode in the AA Recovery Interviews podcast series and features a man I've been close to for the past 30 years, Jeff A. Raised in a middle-class family with its share of alcoholism among its descendants, Jeff's drinking took off in his late teens and early 20s in a self-made world of isolation from others. His sense of purposelessness and lack of direction fed feelings of low self-esteem. He found himself drinking alone and more than ever. His alcoholism soon teamed up with an addiction to work in a field that has little respect for such addictions and would ultimately drain every hour he was willing to work. As things got worse, Jeff's first marriage was falling apart. A final ultimatum from his wife and advice from a psychotherapist convinced him of the severity of his alcoholism. He finally stopped to try and save his marriage and went to AA. Though his marriage ultimately collapsed, Jeff continued with AA's suggested program of action and did what was recommended to build a successful life of recovery. He became a man of service to the AA community and eventually married a sober woman he met in the fellowship. He has enjoyed a long-term marriage along with its many gifts, including the opportunity to help raise his now teenaged grandson. I see Jeff in AA meetings all the time, He is a regular meeting maker and has prioritized his sobriety above all. As a result, he continues to model the success of a good man in active sobriety. As you listen to Jeff's story, you'll find the details not dissimilar to others told in this podcast series. But then, a strong, well-worked program does include many of the same essential elements, that is, the basics of getting and staying sober that we learn from day one. As you listen to this episode of AA Recovery Interviews, I believe you'll be greatly inspired by Jeff's words and come away with yet more evidence that the program really does work, if we work it. So, lend us your ears for the next hour, and please enjoy my fine old friend and AA brother, Jeff A. My name's Jeff, and I'm an alcoholic. Yeah, Jeff, it's so good to have you on the show. (laughs) AA Recovery Interviews was meant for a guy like you. (laughs) You know, you and I go back a really, really long time. Uh, You've been sober for... It'll It'll be 29 years next month. 29 years next month. That's amazing. I think I met you very early on. The old Hyatt meeting. Yeah. I remember they used to have that meeting in the bar. Comedy club. Yeah, the comedy club. Oh, yeah. And then it moved, and then it moved again, and it's moved a lot over the years. And uh, so you're one of those guys that whenever I see you, it always takes me back to my beginnings, but then you and I have been together every step of the way, which is cool. We go to the retreats here and have for a long time, and we spent a lot of time together. So you got sober 29 years ago next month. Right. And was that your very first time to try and get sober 29 years ago? No, my first sobriety date was in August of 1989. Okay, so about a year earlier or something like that? Three years. Three years, yeah. 
Wow, that's amazing. Because this one's in 92, December 92. So 89. So what was going on in 1989 that made you believe that you had to go to AA or you wanted to go to AA or you wanted to get sober and AA wasn't involved? Well, I came back from working on the East Coast. Uh, We closed the company down, a construction management company, Mm -hmm. and I basically was out of a job. Uh, I had a severance package. They... And I came back to Houston because my wife had stayed here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she uh, was having problems at work and went to a therapist. And we started going together because mm-hmm. uh, the marriage was not in any great shape. What do you attribute that to? She was just having problems at work. Yeah. And, and were you drinking a lot at home? At that time, I had quit drinking two years before then. So I had quit drinking between Christmas and New Year's of 1987. But then when I came back, because we had been going to this marriage counselor, Mm -hmm. uh, she took one look at me and said, he's a drunk. (laughs) 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 And Wendy was going to Al-Anon. She'd been in Al-Anon a couple years by that time. And the deal was, if I come back, I've got to go to AA or I'm out of the house. So you had that ultimatum kind of leveled upon you. Oh, yeah. Stop drinking or stay out. No, the choice was you go to AA. Because I had stopped drinking by that time. Okay. So was it that she just didn't like a dry alcoholic around, or was she convinced through her Al-Anon experience that, a, that you needed AA? Well, I think it was more at the behest of the, of the therapist, because this particular therapist had been sober over 15 years by that time. So she pointed the finger at me and said, you got to go to AA. And my wife would continue going to Al-Anon. That's the way it was. So when I got back, I was uh, I had a big, nice severance package, so I had enough to go to school mm-hmm. uh, for an, in an executive MBA program, mm-hmm. and I started doing that. And in August, I started going to AA. That was part of the deal. Mm. So that would have been August of '89. August '89. Yeah. What did you think of AA when you first went in? Like your first meeting, what was that like for you? What were you, what was on your mind? I didn't know anything about AA, so I really. I could relate to the people there because mm-hmm. that's what they told me was look for the similarities and not the differences. Even though I hadn't had a drink in a while, I could identify with a lot of the experiences. The circumstances were always different, yeah, but the experiences were basically the same. You know, I'm, I'm curious. You said that, that you went in when you were a couple years dry. Did the fact that you were dry give you the sense that you could just skip over a bunch of the early work that would be necessary for a guy to get two years in AA? Did you, did you see yourself as equivalent to somebody who'd been in AA for two years coming in at, at two years yourself? No, that was totally alien. Really? Because I didn't know anything about the program or how it worked. I just know that the mandate was that you go or you're gone. Mm-hmm. So I went. That's a heck of a mandate. Oh, uh, Yeah certainly was. So you went from 1989 until... I never stopped going. What happened in 92 is we were about to be divorced. Mm-hmm. Uh, the original arrangement would we would be separated for the, year, for the first year and then decide if we wanted to stay married or not. And there was absolutely no reason for us to stay married. Uh, in my opinion, we got married in the disease... Just come to find out that uh, she was an alcoholic earlier in her life and had gotten 
into Al-Anon and started working that program. She wasn't. She had never been in AA, though, huh? No. That's no. interesting. So she got yeah. sober in Al-Anon. She didn't drink much. And I think a part of that was because of her family. And her mom had some kind of mental illness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, she got abused by her brother. There was all that baggage that she had from that period of time. Yeah, that's rough, especially when you're bringing that kind of thing into the marriage. So from 89 until 1992, you were trying to make a go of doing AA and improving the quality of your marriage during that time, or was it just not happening? It wasn't happening. What, what, why not? Uh, because we were separated. Uh, she had moved out within a year of us, of me getting to the program hmm. and her being in it already. And it basically worked out to we were living separately. But then there was no, I mean, I was still going to see the therapist, as was she, mm-hmm. separately. And that therapist was basically running my life at that point in time. So to listen to your wife meant listening to the therapist? In essence, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds, though, like if she was pointing you to AA, she wasn't misguiding you or doing anything malevolent. No, not at all. Not at all. Sounds like she had your best interests at heart. I think so. Uh, and actually, I'll always be grateful that she got me to AA mm-hmm. uh, in, <laughs> in spite of myself. So you guys were separated from 91 until... The divorce was final in December of 92. Mm-hmm. So somehow the date of December 92 with your divorce and December 92 for your last AA sobriety date, they seem to be related to each other. Yes, they are. Can you kind of unpack that for me? What I found in retrospect was that I wasn't being honest, basically not following the first step. Uh, One of the big things that Wendy wanted was my frequent flyer miles. Because I had a bunch of them. Because I was traveling all over the country. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> and I was trying to hold them back or hold some of them back. Because another friend of mine in the program and I were going to go to Hawaii uh-huh. and spend a week or two over there. And that's how I was going to get there. But that didn't work out. And I was having some physical problems at the time. And I went to a doctor and he prescribed muscle relaxers, mm-hmm. which I took as prescribed, but it just so happened that the next morning I went in to see the therapist. She took one look at me and said, you're high. And she said, you need to go pick up another desire chip. Did you take those medications with the intent of getting high or just with the intent of killing the pain? Just to kill the pain. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, because we know that the responsible use of medications... There's nothing wrong with that within the program of AA. There's nothing wrong with us seeking out medical care from other doctors. And that medical care may include things like muscle relaxants. And when they're used legitimately and according to the prescription, it, it's hard to find anybody who, who argues with that. What, why did she think that you were high? Because she took one look at me and could tell. She'd been sober long enough and been in the profession as a therapist that she knew the difference. And by that time, I'd been seeing her for a couple of years. She just knew that I was high. And actually, I was. Okay. Even though I took them as prescribed, but they had whatever effect on me that sent me over the edge. 
I didn't know that part of the story. That's that's interesting and different that she took a look at you and said you're high and go get another. So did you do that? You went and got another desire check? Yeah. It happened to be a Tuesday, and I went to my Tuesday night men's meeting and picked up the desire chip there. I think I was there when you did that, and everybody was really kind of shocked. And I was pissed. I was pissed for three years that I had to pick up another desire chip. I remember when you got up and got it, I thought, did he go out and drink? Because I was seeing you at that meeting every week. And I guess I did find out later that it was it was a, prescript, a prescription drug that you had uh, slipped on. So... In reality, you haven't had an alcoholic drink in 32 years, something like that? Closer to 34, because I quit in at the end of 87. You were a dry drunk. Oh, yeah. I was a dry drunk for quite a while. Yeah. Until you found AA in 92. Yeah. So how did a guy like you get to be a guy like you? What, what was your early life like that you ended up an alcoholic? I think it's genetic. It runs in my family. Uh-huh. As growing up, I was one of four boys, and my dad was a Manhattan drinker, and he would always give one of the boys what we called the booze cherry. He put a cherry in the Manhattan, and it was soaked with alcohol, mm-hmm. and that's where we started. So you were sucking on the cherries and eating the cherries when you were a little tyke. Yep, yep. I didn't really start to actively drink until I went to college. Really? Okay. Because then I was 600 miles away from home, uh-huh. and nobody was watching me. <laughs> was there other uh, other alcoholism in the family, in the extended family? Absolutely. What did you know about that growing up? Well, I used to get sentenced to spend time with my aunt and uncle in the summer. And my aunt was an alcoholic, and my uncle was a violent alcoholic while I was there. And that would be a week or two during the summer. Mm-hmm. Why I got sent there, I don't have a clue. Did you tell your parents about it? No, I didn't know any better. Did the uh, aunt and uncle tell you to just not say anything? No, it was just, that was the way it was. Everybody drank in my family. My grandfather was a violent alcoholic. He worked for shipyards in New York, Thursdays with payday, and he'd come home drunk and beat most of the people in the family. And I think that's why my aunt's, Got married young and got out of the house. (laughs) So this is your dad's father? Yes. Is there drinking on the maternal side of the family too? I don't know because I didn't know my grandfather. Mm -hmm. My grandmother was still alive and I don't think that she drank much. Now, I know my mom had a problem, especially later in her life, Uh but it wasn't a daily thing. It was more periodic. Mm -hmm. Uh, And actually, my dad drank every day, but it wasn't a lot. Mm. It would be a glass of wine, maybe a Manhattan, you know, on a daily basis, mm-hmm. but nothing where he would get inebriated. Hmm. So you made it through your elementary, middle school, high school without drinking. Was that a, a decision that was informed by your parents, don't drink, stay away from it or whatever, or was it just a decision you made yourself? It was just a way of life. I mean, it never came up. Uh, even though it was available, it just never came up. It it kind of amazes me that it didn't. But I was not a very social person. I was an isolator. I always have been. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, didn't really get in with the in crowd or any of the, anything like that. So you got to college. 
having not had any experience with drugs or alcohol in high school, what were your first exposures to alcohol like for you in college? I became a regular at the study hall. That was the local beer hall. <laughs> okay, study hall. <laughs> yeah. And you couldn't really get alcohol in South Carolina. It was all state controlled. Mm-hmm. So you had to be 21 to buy it. But the study hall, you'd go down there and drink all the beer you could afford. Mm. Uh, and that's really where it started. I would get drunk on a maybe every, I don't know if it was every weekend or every other weekend mm-hmm. or just periodically, but that was what I did. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the way of life. Was drinking at the study hall or wherever else you were doing it in college, was it helping to socialize you at all or were you continuing to isolate? Continued to isolate. So you'd get drunk yeah. and go back to your room yep. or get drunk and yep. go back, yep. be by yourself? Go back yourself. to the room, yeah. Be by yourself. Were you a, a, a blackout drinker? Oh, yeah. 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 From the get-go, I was a blackout drinker. So the times that you drank, you just don't recall what happened in most cases, no. I do remember waking up in my uh, dorm room from time to time <laughs> with the trash can next to the bed and one foot on the floor to keep the keep the world from spinning. <laughs> yeah, I, I had some of those times when I went oh, to yeah. college, too. Yeah. Uh, my drinking really didn't escalate until I got on the drill team as a sophomore. And I was just one of the guys. And we would go out, and there was always beer involved. Uh, And as I progressed through that, uh, as a sophomore, I was on the drill team. As a junior, I was the drill sergeant. And then as a senior, I progressed, and the regimental headquarters was at my college. Uh And I was regimental commander for a year, Hmm. which was interesting. Yeah. Uh, My claim to fame at that point was I drank a regular Army major under the table. (laughs) Did you get a promotion for that or anything? (laughs) No, I got a hangover. (laughs) That's your claim to fame, huh? That was it. That was it. And, you know, at that time, uh, they had a whiskey called Rebel Yell, Uh basically a bourbon. Yeah. And that's what, uh, basically what we would drink. Huh. So bourbon and beer. Not together. Not together. <laughs> Separately. Yeah. Wow. So you were able to graduate okay? Yeah. So, so what did you end up doing when you got out? What, what did the next several years look like in your well, career? Well, because I was in ROTC for my entire college career, mm-hmm. my objective was to go into the service. But then as a senior, my pre-commissioning physical, I got medically disqualified because I'd had asthma. And I still have it, but... At that time, it was cause for disqualification because you have to look at any excuse and you were, you were history. I was 4F, medically disqualified. That must have been uh, disappointing. It pissed me off because I was going to make the military a career, but it was not to be. Is there nothing within the military for a guy who has asthma? No. They wouldn't even commission me. And probably part of that was because I had branched Corps of Engineers and I was... Uh, in line for a regular army commission and not wasn't going to happen so instead of branching there what did you do i had to go find a job (laughs) but you had an interest in the corps of engineer did that kind of inform your decisions as to what you wanted to do sure yeah my major was in building construction which is construction management today Mm -hmm. 
but at that time, that was one of the few places that offered that kind of a program. Mm -hmm. And when I got out of school, I'm searching for a job. Yeah, the early 70s was, was a really rough time, wasn't it? Yep. After a few months, I wound up getting a couple of leads. Mm -hmm. One was to a small open shop contractor. Mm-hmm who I eventually wound up going to work for. I stayed with them almost a year, and then I moved on to another contractor who mm -hmm. then moved me around the countryside for a while. And my drinking progressed. They were relocating you. Yep, yearly. I was young enough in my career that I, w I would be moved from project to project because at that time, it's not like it is today where you get out of college and you're a project manager. I was a field engineer, which means I was out on site, doing layout, doing supervision of the actual crews. Wearing the heavy boots and the hard hat. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it wasn't until later that I got beyond that. In 1979, I wound up down here uh, for a different company. Mm -hmm. I liked Texas. <laughs> <laughs> really? Why is that? Open container law. Uh-huh. And my car wouldn't start without a can of beer in, in my other hand. <laughs> Okay. And by that time, I was a daily drinker. So construction workers obviously have the reputation of being beer drinkers and, you know, kind of rowdy and raucous and that sort of thing. You weren't quite a construction worker, were you? You were more of a management guy. I was more of a management, but I was leader of the pack. They were already doing that, but I just was a willing participant. Okay. Yeah. So you'd go with, you'd be just one of the gang. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You mentioned being a daily drinker. Was that after you got off work at night? Yes. Did yeah. you ever drink in the mornings or during the day? No. It wasn't until further on in my career and I began to recognize that with the amount of alcohol I'd had the night before, I was never sober. <laughs> I just, I had alcohol in my system all the time. So you were, in essence, a functional alcoholic in that you would drink enough to still be drunk the next day or at least inebriated enough to know that you weren't completely sober. Correct, yeah. That can be a blessing and a curse, can't it? Absolutely. Did you ever get fired from a job for alcoholism? Oh, yeah, even though it wasn't stated that way. What were the circumstances? I was w running work in California, uh -huh. uh, even though I was still stationed here. Mm -hmm. And not doing very well mm -hmm. but then i came back to houston and basically got told you're done you're out of here pack your bags yeah pack your bags and go huh and that was my first real period of unemployment and i had to go find another job did you put two and two together about the drinking and the loss of the job i didn't have a clue really yeah. What, what, uh, they didn't give you any, any uh, explanation or any kind of reason why you were being let go? None. Huh. It was huh. just, you're gone. And those were in the days before health insurance covered uh, oh, yeah. treatment yeah. centers and that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, because that was in the mid-80s. Yeah. Yeah. So you're a daily drinker, you're, you're getting thrown off the job. Did you have other consequences from the drinking? Did you have any DUIs or did you get in any scrapes with the law as a result? No, I used to get stopped on a regular basis by the state troopers on I-10. Really? Yeah. On a regular basis? On a regular basis. 
but I was generally not far from home. It was yeah. the next exit or two. And they just let me go home. That happened more than a few times? More than, yeah, a few times. So you never got cited for drunk nope. driving? Nope. Wow. But my guess is if you were drinking every day that you were driving drunk a lot. Yes, absolutely. Including the next morning when you were still under the influence or not? I really wasn't the, under the influence the next morning. By that time, I had developed a tolerance for alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get hung over much mm-hmm. unless I really went crazy the night before. But I'm sure I wasn't performing the way I should have been. You were still able to keep the jo- most of your jobs yeah. with very little consequence as a result of your drinking. Yep. I was in my mid-30s at that time. Uh-huh. And then it took me a while, but I eventually found another job on the East Coast. Uh, even though my projects were generally in Texas, mm-hmm. my office was in Boston, and I was going back and forth. Uh, and that's where a lot of my frequent flyer miles came from. Because I had projects in, in, in Houston, Oklahoma, I had one in Denver, uh, West Virginia. I used to spend a lot of time up there. Mm-hmm. By that time, I had become a project manager, basically trying to get work done. Did you find you were drinking more as a result of your lifestyle, or were you still a loner, and were you still isolated? I was still a loner, still isolated, mm-hmm. but I was drinking more. With what intent? Not to feel anything. Yeah. I drank for the effect. So, based on what you just said, if we rewind this just a bit, you were drinking to not have to feel. What were were the feelings that the booze was helping to cover up or drown? I would probably say more of not having any goals, not having any purpose, Mm -hmm. not really having a clue what it was all about. Was it that you felt unfulfilled? That was part of it. I didn't know what fulfillment was. The environment that you grew up in, was there an expectation that you would become something someday? That was never disclosed or discussed. Uh, the only clear goal that I remember was go to college and then go to work. You know, I got that exact same message from my parents. And uh, my mother hadn't gone to college. My dad had gone, but mostly to for an associate's degree and that kind of thing. And it was so important to go to college to be able to get a job after college. But there wasn't any direction or leadership whatsoever towards what to study or what to do. And so because I liked to party and drink in college, everything that I did supported that particular habit. So the classes that I took, the times of those classes, the ease of passing those classes were all major factors in me ending up with a degree that turned out to be relatively useless. It was one of these bachelor's of arts <laughs> degrees that just were was 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 not worth the paper it was written on and those are the kind of decisions i made back then that literally affected my life from that point on did you feel that way when you when you got out of college yeah absolutely i mean i basically had a career not a, necessarily a career path but a but a work path i mean i had a degree in call it construction management there was no real objective and it was just you show up and you go to work and you and you do what you know you do what you're supposed to do but that's as far as it ever went I had no passion for anything so when you were drinking you were able to relieve the feelings of having no passion yes yes 
Were you ever involved with marijuana or other kinds of drugs? I tried some of that early uh, in my work life. We tried some hashish and some pot and being as asthmatic, you know, I couldn't smoke oh, anyhow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. <laughs> so it was didn't do anything for me. And the way I figured it was alcohol was legal, so I could stick with that. Did the work ethic that you developed from this lack of actual direction when you needed it most, did that work ethic follow you throughout your career or did you, were you able to, once you got sober, modify that into a more goals oriented no, the work ethic followed me. It did. I mean, that's the way we were brought up. So you work, you go to work, you get your paycheck, you go yep. drink. Or do whatever. Uh, and I never developed any outside interests huh. in reality. Uh, so you worked a lot then, huh? Oh, yeah. That's what, I was basically a workaholic. Huh. And that was when, in 89, when we were closing down the company in, Bal in uh, Boston, mm -hmm. that... I decided, well, I'm going to have a nice severance package. Why not go back to school and get an MBA? And that's what I did when I went back to Houston. But then the edict or the mandate <laughs> to go to AA came in, mm -hmm. and that became a priority. Not my priority, but the priority that was pushed upon me. So going to AA got in the way of you actually following through on what it was you wanted to do? I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was directionless, basically aimless or clueless. Call it what you will. So what happens to a clueless, aimless person when they get drunk every day? They just go from day to day. Yeah. There's no, no real goal other than to get through the day and not have to feel anything. It's kind of a miserable existence, isn't it? Very much so. Very much so. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my Big Book podcast, the complete, unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. The Big Book Podcast is produced by Howard L., who receives no remuneration for this vital AA service work. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. So in your final years of drinking, was there, besides the therapist and your wife noticing what was going on and trying to get you to stop or giving you the, the ultimatum. Were you at any point noticing problems associated with your drinking or your drinking associated with the problems that you were having? <laughs> uh, not really. Uh, some of the other addictions that I have took over and became a priority. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, especially after I stopped drinking and was dry. Yeah, yeah. But not yet in AA. No, not yet in AA. I mean, I was uh, almost full-time in West Virginia at that time. And I had a couple girlfriends. Uh-huh, okay. Even though I was married. So that became my priority. Yeah, I get it. So your, your addictions were shifting. Yes. You were dry, but engaging in other addictive yep. behaviors like 
with the women yep. or with the, certainly the workaholism. Work. Oh, yeah. The workaholism. I was always working. Did you ever notice that, the addictive quality of that in your life? Did, were you ever, did you ever think about, you know, I'm working when I really don't even want to? It never occurred to me. It wasn't on my radar. I'm just curious because we get to a point with alcohol, right, where maybe we get a moment of clarity and we suddenly realize, wow, look at what I'm doing in my life. This sucks. I got to do something better. God help me. Did you ever get that way with work? Never got that way. Even though I did recognize that I was working too much Mm -hmm. and I wasn't really getting anything out of it other than a paycheck. But the paycheck was the same whether I worked 40 hours or 60 or 80. So you'd work the 80 just because you had the addiction to doing the work. Yep. I felt the responsibility. Yeah, regardless of what you were being paid or, or what, what sort of uh, attention you were getting from management. So you must, have been a, you must have been a favorite around your company, the guy who's always willing to be on the job doing the work all the time. In some aspects. Yeah. Did you ever have bosses who said, hey, Jeff, scale it back a little bit, man. No. You're, you're, no. no. I guess in that business, probably not a whole no. lot of that, is there? <laughs> there wasn't any that I saw. Yeah, with the deadlines and the yep. short fuses and, the, yep. and, and, yep. and that sort of thing. I get it. So you're dry during between 89 and 92, and you come into AA. I came into AA in 89. I was dry between 87 and 89. You came in in 89, but then you got divorced in, was it 92? Yep, and then 92. And that, then the deal with the pain, and then you reset your sobriety date. So what was your first year like in AA? Which one? <laughs> there are two of them. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's look at the first one first, and we'll look at the second one second. The first one was I was learning a lot. Uh-huh. People that accepted me just the way I was. There was a game plan for not drinking, mm-hmm. uh, and it was something I needed. Did you have a sponsor at that time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've always had a sponsor. You worked the steps when you when you got in right away? Yeah. Not completely, but when I got to the fourth step with my first sponsor, mm-hmm. we glossed over the se- the sex inventory. For whatever reason, we didn't go there. So it was mostly fearless and not completely thorough. Yes. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> it's certainly not moral, right? No, no, definitely not that. No, that had nothing to do with it. Uh. So did you stall out at that point with your recovery? Did you just, like, like you said, you glossed over it. So we've done the fourth step. Let's move on, even though you'd not done the sex inventory. Never became an issue. I was going to meetings regularly, mm-hmm. doing service work. I was just one of the group. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, so you were coming in on those Tuesday nights, and then I was seeing you on Sunday night. Yep. You were very, very involved in AA. I've always always been involved. Didn't you do something with the um, information or corrections? I did public information for a while. Uh, I did jail meetings at Harris County for like seven years, and that was a weekly thing. Uh, and that started before I was even a year sober. Huh. That Tuesday meeting that the current one spun off from, uh, one of the guys there handed me an application, and within a couple months I was going to meetings at Harris County Jail. Uh, I had a clean record. Yeah. So you got so you got right in. Got right in. But you were able to leave at the end of the hour. Oh yeah, that was the best part. <laughs> I was able to go home. <laughs> what kind of effect did that have on your sobriety? Looking back, had you not done that, do you think the quality of your sobriety would have been different or how did that inform 
the quality of your early sobriety? It would have been less. Really? Because going down there, I got a sense of gratitude. Mm -hmm. One of the meetings that I vividly remember uh-huh. is one of the guys, one of the inmates, uh-huh. had knifed and killed somebody in a bar fight on my sobriety date. Ooh. Like, ouch. Ooh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and he was heading to TDCJ. He wasn't staying in the county. He was going to do hard time. He was going off know? to prison, huh? Yep. That's tough. And there were a lot of those. You must have gained a lot of gratitude during that time. Huh? Yes. Yep. And I think that's one of the reasons why I kept coming back. Because it was a design for living that was working. Yeah. I'm glad to hear you say that. And I know you and I over, the, over time have talked about the importance of God in that equation. Can you elaborate a little bit on your on your the spirituality of AA in your life and what that's meant? Well, when I got to AA, once I got to the second step, I got to see that I was really an agnostic. I had no higher power in my life. Never had. Yeah. Uh, and what happened was it evolved over time. The only way I found a higher power was by working the steps. Yeah. And getting to the 12th step and recognizing that I had that spiritual awakening, that there was a higher power. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't it, mm -hmm. but there was one. And I got to see how that higher power worked in other people's lives. And that gave me hope that hmm, if it works for them, why not work for me? Yeah. I, I love that about AA, that it's kind of a self-proving program. And and your your experience was a lot like mine because I had to go through the 12 steps. I would say the first three steps as if I believed them, but I didn't really, I didn't really accept them or give them any real, any real attention, let's say, until after I had done work through the steps. So I was able to see, oh, when I was struggling with the fourth step, this is how God gave me a little bit of guidance. When I didn't quite know what to say in the ninth step, I was inspired in some way or another and working the steps. And by the time I got to 12, it's like, oh, okay. I couldn't have gotten through the first 11 if I hadn't, so I must have, ergo, God. One of the keys for me is the wording in the second step. It says, came to believe. It's in the past tense. I had to go beyond that to develop the willingness uh -huh. to even come to believe. And that was definitely a process. And it took time. It took a lot of time. Yeah. So you got remarried at some point, didn't you? Right. After I got divorced at the end of 92, mm -hmm. uh, I was basically single for a few years until in 96... The therapist that I was still seeing committed suicide. I remember that. Yeah. Oh, I remember how devastated you were. Yep. Yep. And that's when I started dating my current wife. Huh. Was in that time period. And she's in the program. Oh, yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Our sobriety dates are not far apart. <laughs> <laughs> She's got about six months less than I do. Yeah. <laughs> What's that like? Because my wife is not, she's not an AA. Uh, what, uh, what's it like living with another al uh, sober alcoholic? It's one of the things I had to come to grips with early 
was that she has her program, I have mine, and never the twain shall meet. I get it. Even though initially we go to meetings together and that kind of thing, now we may go to one meeting together a week. In my opinion, she goes because she meets her friends there. And that's fine. That, it works for her. Uh, I recognize that the only way this was going to work is if I took my higher power into the relationship. He's got to be in charge. Not me. Not me. You are a remarkably spiritual man, and it's a different type. And you're shaking your head yes. Yes, absolutely. How do you look at your spirituality? What does that look like to you reflected back? That's hard to say. Yeah. I've basically taken to heart the practices as laid out in the big book. Prayer and meditation in the morning. Uh, that's been an integral part of my program since I first got in the program. Yeah. I was told, told you can start that now. And I did. And I continue to do that. I read something out of AA literature in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sometimes it's the big book. I always read a couple meditation books and do some meditation. Mm -hmm. And that's how I start my day. Mm. Uh, and that has worked so far. So I remembered there were times when you were working out of state and actually several years in there when you were out of Houston completely. And you were in some very rural areas <laughs> on projects you were working on. I also remember there was a time in which you would have gone to more meetings if you if they were available to you that you didn't D did you find that that was a difficult time in your sobriety actually because i'd been schooled in how to handle that uh-huh when i was in places like rural alabama or rural kentucky there were meetings there because i made sure that there were meetings there before i went uh-huh okay so there were meetings that i could always go to and that was basically how it worked. Now, when I was overseas, I spent six months in Thailand doing flood mitigation uh, when they had that big flood over there mm -hmm. uh, in Bangkok. And for me, what worked then, besides doing my normal morning routine of prayer and meditation, they didn't let us drive over there, for which I'm real grateful. Yeah. <laughs> we had drivers, local. And during that period of time from where we were staying to the job site was almost an hour. Mm. And I got to spend an, a good part of that time on the phone to back here. And 6.30 in the morning over there is 6.30 p.m. here. So that worked out real well. I remember getting some of those phone calls. Yeah. It was always interesting to talk to yeah. you from over there. And you were able to maintain your connection to the program Via the phone. Via the phone. Because I couldn't get the meetings. Yeah. It was 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Hmm. It was a very intense project. So you'd go to work and then come home in the evening, eat, go to bed, do the same thing the next day. Well, you got through that, and it's amazing You, you yep. know the, the times that you've worked out of state. You've been able to maintain your sobriety and, I think, a pretty good perspective overall on AA. I'm curious about some of the challenges that you have faced that... AA was there for you. And I wondered if you would tell me about a few of those. Well, when I went through the divorce, which was not very acrimonious, but it was just plain splitting stuff up, that was a challenge. Mm -hmm. And what you guys had taught me was go to more meetings, which is what I did. And stayed close to the program. Mm -hmm. 
uh, I've found for me that the program is my anchor. It's the one constant in my life for the last 30 years. Yeah, I get it. Uh, specific instances, actually, I've been pretty fortunate. I haven't really had any. You've had some health issues, haven't you? have had some health issues, uh, but we've gotten through them without a problem. Having a nurse as a wife helps. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it does. Because <laughs> she keeps me on the straight and narrow. She keeps you on the straight and narrow. Oh, yeah. And, and, and there's a great wealth of information. Mm-hmm. As stuff comes up, address it. Being a born and bred procrastinator, addressing things as they come up mm-hmm. is something different. It helps. Well, I know that you've had some real gifts in the last number of years in the form of little people coming into your life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Can you tell me a little about that? Yep. When we moved, or actually before then, uh, Catherine was still living with us. Right. And <laughs> denied to the day that she, was, that she went into labor that she was pregnant. And consequently, my oldest grandson... Uh-huh. was born on Christmas Day. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Ellie and I made the decision at that time to regard him as a gift. Mm. And he's still a gift. And he always will be. Yeah. And I think one of the things with that situation is Catherine was still out there doing her thing. She was drinking and doing whatever she was doing. That's why out of the four grandsons, there are three different fathers. <laughs> Yeah. But what happened with Ben is during that time, we were basically taking care of him. And he, she, was, she, was not, she was not physically neglecting him, but she was out doing her thing. Yeah, that's a dangerous situation. Very much so. And it came down to the point where when I got reassigned to Alabama, right. we took Benny. Yeah. Left her here. And you were there for what, three years? Three years. Three years. Yep. So you're a man who never had any of your own children. Correct. But as a grandfather, you were able to have the experience of helping to raise a little guy from yep. almost babyhood. Babyhood till about five. Till about five. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Wow. If that's not a blessing, I don't know what is. It, it is. And she's kind of turned her life around too, hasn't she? Very much so. Uh, she knows what alcoholism is. Uh-huh. She used to be the coffee girl at some of the meetings that Ellie and I went to. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and I think she sees it in her family. And you guys talk about it too, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Not that much. I mean, she's got a, a basic knowledge. Her grandfather was an alcoholic. Uh, on her dad's side, I don't know. I suspect they were. Mm-hmm. But that's something for her to you know, deal with. Uh, but she has managed and she's turned around. Uh-huh. I do remember when <laughs> we threw her out of the house <laughs> and I had to go up in there and clean her room out. Mm-hmm. The beer bottles and the whiskey bottles and all that other kind of stuff was, uh, was a surprise, even to me. Must have brought back some memories, eh? Uh, <laughs> Not so pleasant ones, right? Well, more gratitude that I wasn't doing that anymore. That, 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 that those weren't yours, <laughs> Yeah, right? they weren't yeah. mine. Yep, yep, never mind. <laughs> Have you had the opportunity to sit down with them and in a way that they can understand, talk to them about 
some of the things that are out there, whether it be drugs or alcohol or other behaviors? I think Catherine has done that. So she's done that. Yeah, because okay. Benny is old enough. He's 14. And Dominic is, I guess, 11. And I think she's done that with the boys. The younger boys, uh, I don't think so. And only time will tell with that. How often do you see your grandkids? Oh, probably once a month or every other month. That's great. Uh, we spent Thanksgiving with them. And they're here? They're not far away. They're all really close by. Oh, yeah. They're only an hour away. Wow, that's a real gift, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And they've established uh, a family. They're doing real well. They've moved into a new house. They, uh, Bobby may be one of us, but that's not up to me. <laughs> but whenever anyone anywhere reaches out for help, you want the hand of AA to be there. And for that, maybe you'll be responsible for being that hand for him. Or guiding them in, in a direction. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a believer in that we can't help family. That became obvious to me with my youngest brother. Uh, he's definitely one of us, but if he ever finds a sobriety date, that's up to him. He's really struggled for a long time, hasn't he? Very yeah. much so. He's that's... learning disabled. He always has been. Yeah. Uh, and it's up to his higher power. Yeah, but doesn't it rip your heart out when you realize that what you have that is so evident and important in your life that he won't even consider? Yeah, he won't. Uh, at least not that I know of. Yeah. I mean, he's still in Colorado. I expect he'll probably stay there, mm -hmm. even though it's not good for his health. He's on oxygen now. Not a good place to be <laughs> at 5,000 feet. No, yeah, it's get not. It. Yeah, yeah, that's tough. With my other brothers, my next brother down, he, uh, I don't think they're alcoholic. Hmm. I used to think that they were, but I don't know. I don't have a clue. Uh, he and I don't communicate much. Uh, politically, we're at opposite ends of the spectrum. <laughs> but the next brother down, I have a pretty good relationship. He's come here. He knows I'm in AA. Uh -huh. He recognizes what it's done for me, which is good. But they, they all know that you're there for them, don't they? Yeah. Whether anything comes of that or not, it's not up to me. So as we wrap this up, I always like to find out a little bit about if, if the Jeff of today with what you know from all of your experience in AA and everything else, we're able to transport back to the Jeff of early 20s in the midst and in the at the height of your alcoholism. What would the Jeff of today say to him that might make a difference? I don't know. It's pretty hard-headed. I don't know if anything would sink in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really don't know. So maybe there's a way I could rephrase that. Let's say somebody comes in who looks a lot like you looked at that age, has a lot of the same issues. And as you talk to the guy, you realize that guy is me, you know, 40 years ago. What do you normally say to that guy besides just giving him your phone number? Offer to be there for him if he ever wants to talk or has questions or, or you know, is looking for some, some guidance. I mean, I don't know if I could give him any, but I could share what's happened to me. And I think that's really all I've got is my experience, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, would I do things different? Sure. But that's not in the cards. That's probably true for all of us. 
you know, I've, I've really enjoyed being a friend for so many years. And looking back, it's kind of hard to believe the years have gone by as quickly as they have. But it's still so edifying and meaningful for me to be in a meeting with you. I watch you after the meetings and I see you going up to some of the new guys and handing them the, them your card. And I see you actively talking to them and interacting with the newcomers and everything else. If there was ever one thing that was going to keep a man really connected with AA, that's it. To be in the fellowship and feeling comfortable and safe and secure with your own sobriety, being able to offer that to a man who, if you're not doing that, he's out the door and in his car and gone. So. Yeah, I followed your example on that. Well, <laughs> you, you know, and I, I have to say, there have been times over the years that, that I have pointed some people your direction, mm -hmm. and some of them have worked, some of them haven't, just like is in my experience mm -hmm. with sponsorship. But I, I see the love that you express, not only for the men in the room, but even for the new guy just coming in who you don't even know. It, it's, it's real clear to me that you've got a strong program, that you believe in the basics, you're still doing them. I mean, you mentioned the prayer that you do every day. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're in meetings all the time. Yep. You're reading. You're, you've worked the steps. And you're of, you're of service. I mean, it's, you've got that punch list all checked off. <laughs> And, I don't and to, know about that. Well, no, I mean, it, it's, you're, you're, you're uh, a very modest man. But, you know, when I look at the quality of your sobriety, I see some contentment. In fact, a lot of contentment there. And could things be going better in this way or that way? Probably always could be, right? Yes. But by and large, would you say you're a pretty well-contented AA man? I think so. I think so. I'm looking forward to retirement here in another few months because one of my goals is going to be to do more service work. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Do you see it, it, that being more a function of time? Yes, absolutely. How are you going to get by the workaholism? Has that kind of scaled down along with your involvement in AA? That is scaled down to a large degree. And part of that's because I've got some other interests that I'm looking at now. Yeah. Some things that I want to do in retirement. That's cool. And I'll just keep on with that. So you'll be going to more daytime meetings. I hope so. Something you haven't been able to do in a very yep. long time. And you'll be able to pick and choose your service commitments. I've been pointing towards getting back into more correctional facilities work. I'm glad there are guys like you who like doing that sort of thing, because I've never been able to see myself doing that. I mean, maybe one day. There are certain guys who seem just so nonchalant about it, like, yeah, I'm going into prison, I'm seeing these guys, but hey, it's just a meeting I'm bringing in. Well, it, it's more a question of they're doing my time. As many times as I drove drunk uh, and the car accidents that I've been in, yeah. and they've always been minor, but those guys are in there doing my yeah, time. They could have been worse. Oh, absolutely. So you're looking at re-engaging with those guys and yeah, being of yep. maximum service to them. Yeah, it's been worthwhile. Uh, one of the things Charlie T and I used to go down to the down to the county and occasionally yeah. into one of the state facilities. But in the state facilities, when you go into the Sally Port, yeah, whoever designed that electric lock, it has the sound of absolute finality. When that thing closes behind you, oh. <laughs> You know you're not going anywhere. Oh, that's got to be that's got to be a scary feeling. Well, it's yeah. best when it's behind you and you're on the outside. I know, but every now and then, every now and then, you see one of those movies where the guy goes in to visit, and somehow they get him mistaken for a prisoner, and they keep him in, and the rest of the movie is him trying to get yeah. out and that sort of thing. That's that's. <laughs> 
So you deal with that. I'll keep on dealing with my stuff. But in the meantime, I want to thank you just so much from the bottom of my heart for your friendship, your love over the years. I love you. And uh, you've been an inspiration to me in a lot of ways throughout the program, throughout the years. But the fact that this is a message that may be heard almost anywhere. And I can see just basically from the, some of the things you've talked about that it can have a real impact and importance for somebody somewhere. We've been uh, friends for a long time. Yeah. I remember going to lunch when I was working in the city and you were downtown. Yeah, and we used to go to that little Mexican restaurant over there. Oh, in yeah, Alabama. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's with some of our litter mates. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, that's yep. amazing. That's amazing. Good at the good old days, huh? Well, the old days. <laughs> the old days. They were good. They were good. They were they, good. They yeah, got yes. us to where we are today. Yes, they so did. That's, that's yes, an important did. thing. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Well, my friends, that brings us to the close of another episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Jeff A., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by sharing it with your fellow AAs? We're on our way to a million podcast followers worldwide, and I appreciate your taking time to listen. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more people. Of course, you can listen to all of the interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.